and see it. The Roman proconsul said, say it, old man, say Caesar as Dominus et Deus. Say it, old man, Caesar is Lord and God. The year was about A.D. 155. Standing before that Roman official was an older Christian man by the name of Polycarp. He was a leader at the church in Smyrna. He had the distinction of being one of the last living men who had been discipled personally by none other than the Apostle John. The Roman official was pressing Polycarp to give up his faith in Christ alone or die at the stake. The old man never wavered. This was his response. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Polycarp died in the marketplace that day, burned at the stake like a bright torch of faithfulness to his gracious King Jesus. There's something inspiring, isn't there? There's something inspiring about an older person still standing faithful to Christ after decades of being pressured to go with the flow of this fallen world culture, of still demonstrating that calm, confident courage, though he has been long pressured by a hostile world to give up his grip on the Savior. Being an older person myself, I look back over the years and I wonder, where did so-and-so go? Whatever happened to Sister So-and-so? And I realize that many professing Christians just wear down, just wear out under the sustained pressure of this world to just fit in. Today we're going to hear the story of a man who stood strong into his old age. It's one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible. The true story of Daniel, who lived faithfully to his God with day-in, day-out pressure that comes from residing, from working in a hostile culture. So if you could join me now in Daniel chapter 6, wherever you are, that you turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 6. As you find your place in Daniel 6, let me just mention that many years have come and gone since we first read Daniel chapter 1. Many things have changed in Daniel's world. In fact, the whole empire had changed more than once. King Nebuchadnezzar, come and gone. Belshazzar, long gone. And now, and now the Medo-Persian Empire was ruling what was formerly known as Babylon. If you want some perspective, it has been about 70 years since the teenage Daniel and his three Hebrew friends had refused to eat the king's food and drink his wine. Now Daniel would have been in his mid to late 80s. Had Daniel worn down? Had he gradually succumbed to the phenomenal stresses of living in that pagan culture? Let's find out. We're going to begin by reading Daniel chapter 6, the first nine verses. And as we read these, I would like you to be looking for answers to this question. What kind of pressures do we think Daniel had been living under? 
The Word of God says this in Daniel chapter 6, the first nine verses. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document <clears throat> so that it cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Daniel lived with the pressure of being in a very public, a very prominent position in the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius the Mede was probably a sub-ruler under the better-known King Cyrus. Darius had set up 120 satraps. <coughs> That's an unusual word to us, maybe we're unfamiliar with it, but it just means a protector of the realm. And so in order to control this huge empire that went the whole way from Egypt to India, he set up these localized leaders to make sure everyone was doing the right thing. Over these 120 satraps, he picked three to be in charge. They were kind of like commissioners or administrators. Daniel was one of those three. And among those three, Daniel had so impressed Darius that Darius wanted to make him kind of like a vice president. Uh, you know, I, I really trust this guy, and I think I would like him to be in charge of the whole thing. Well, the other government officials became very jealous. In fact, they couldn't stand Daniel. His character, his ability, his prominence made them extremely jealous. And if we were to continue to read in Daniel 6, when we get to verse 13, it seems to me that mixed in with their jealousy of his power and his prominence, uh, there was also a level of bigotry. If you want to just glance at verse 13 with me just for a moment, they introduced Daniel to King Darius as this, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. Now think about that with me just for a moment. These men come to Darius and they refer to Daniel as what? An exile from Judah. How long had Daniel been in the empire? 70 years, 70 years he had been there. The great majority of his life, his entire adult life had been lived, not in Judah, 
but they're in exile. And these men pointed that out to the king. There was a level of bigotry as well as jealousy. And yet, let's appreciate that sweet slander. Let's appreciate that sweet slander that Daniel was called an exile, even though he had been in the land for probably longer than a lot of these men had been alive. It's true, wasn't it, that Daniel was an exile. Even though he lived in that culture, he was never seen as of that culture. He was never seen as belonging, ultimately, to that culture. And we should appreciate that as Christians as we live here in our world. I find comfort in how Peter introduces his first letter. He refers to us Christians as what? Are you familiar with this? First Peter chapter 1, Peter addresses his letter to, listen, elect exiles. That's... That's us. That's all of us Christians, not just his original readers. That's all of us Christians, that we are all chosen elect exiles. That you and I live in this world, and yet ultimately this world is not our home, is it? So what's going to happen? These jealous government officials plotted among themselves a way they could get rid of Daniel. They wanted him out of the picture, but guess what? They couldn't find any dirt. Now, we recognize that in our current situation, there are certain people being proposed for positions such as Supreme Court. And you can be sure that someone that's opposed to anything, it doesn't matter who's in charge, the Republicans or the Democrats, the opposing parties, going to look for dirt. <laughs> in this situation, hundreds of years ago, these jealous government officials hated Daniel, wanted him out of the picture, so they said, let's go looking for dirt. And they couldn't find any. There were no skeletons in his closet. He had not given way to the temptation to live a profligate life when it would have been so easy, so tempting for someone of his position. It accepted no bribes. There were no scandals. Daniel was recognized even by his enemies as being a man of great integrity, honesty, and purity. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have government officials like that? <laughs> they recognized that if they were going to trip up Daniel, it would have to somehow involve his faithfulness to his God. Listen, Daniel had not hidden his faith in order to advance in his job, in his job as a government official. He had never played down his trust in the true God of the Bible. He had never kept a low profile when it come to, came to his faith. These jealous government officials knew that Daniel would rather die than disobey his God. And so they hatched their infamous plot. They flattered Darius. It sounds like they were convincing Darius that he should be the sole representative of the gods, plural, of all the gods in the whole empire for a month. Now the fact that the Medo-Persians had this huge empire, there were a variety of ethnic groups, racial groups, and many of them would have had their own god or gods. And so I'm guessing there were scores if not hundreds of gods represented among the empires. These government officials were saying, 
king, why don't you be the sole mediator of all of the gods, of all the people from all the empire for a month? Let's make a law. Let's make a law that no one dare pray to any god unless he does so through you. You know how we pray in Jesus' name? It was like they were saying, all these people with all their gods, when they pray to their gods, they need to come in the name of Darius. And Darius fell for it. These government officials had lied to him. They said, all the other officials have agreed to this proposed law. And I have to think, really all of them? Had Daniel, had Daniel agreed to this? I seriously doubt it. You know, there's a warning here for all of us. There's a lesson, isn't there? Do you wonder if these government officials were really wanting to, wanting to honor Darius? I think they were probably just using Darius to get their own way. And yet flattery has such power, doesn't it? And Darius, even though he was a man of intelligence, a man of power, he fell for it. You know, there's a proverb, it's Proverbs 26, 28, that says, a flattering mouth works ruin. A flattering mouth works ruin. That's important for all of us to remember, not to fall for flattery. They insisted that Darius sign this law into effect. Maybe they realized that Darius had such admiration for Daniel, he had such respect for Daniel, affection for Daniel, that they needed to get the signature of the king on this document so that he couldn't go back on his word, so he couldn't rescind this legislation that they had proposed. Now, it's hard for us to imagine this in our, our governmental system, but in the laws of the Medes and the Persians, if the king signed something into the law, it could not be rescinded. Keep that in mind even as you read the book of Esther, which would have happened just about one generation after this, that the laws of the Medes and the Persians could not be rescinded. So what would old Daniel do? Would he cave into the pressure? Would he... Just lie low for a month. Let's find out. Let's read verses 10 through 15. You following with me? Daniel chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to the God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. 
Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Wow. So what's Daniel going to do? What could he have done? Daniel could have just put his devotional life on hold for a month. You don't need to answer this, but have you ever done that? Have you ever been going through a period of stress in your life, maybe feeling pressure, and you just kind of put your devotional life on hold? Daniel could have done that. He could have just been more secretive. He didn't have to be so public in his prayer, did he? I mean, haven't we all done that at times? You know, you kids in the school cafeteria, you don't want the other kids to know you're praying, thanking God for your food, so you just kind of rub your forehead for a minute, rub back your head, Lord, thank you for the food, amen? Daniel could have just been more secretive about his prayer life, or, or maybe he could have just prayed when he was in bed, pretending to be asleep. No one would know that he's just silently praying. Someone wisely said this one time, when prayer is fashionable, it's time to pray in secret. But when prayer is under pressure, to pray in secret is to give the appearance of fearing man more than God. There are times to pray in secret, and there are times to pray in public. So what did Daniel do? Remember verse 10? Daniel knew the edict. He knew the injunction that Darius had signed. He knew the penalty of praying to any god, his own god, without going through Darius. He knew that. But what did he do? He didn't do anything unusual. He didn't do anything dramatic. He did what he always did. He went home. He went to those open windows that faced Jerusalem to the west, and he prayed three times a day. Evening, the Jewish day began at sunset. Evening, morning, and noon. Daniel never treated his faith in God as a private matter. Over the decades, he had always lived as an open witness to God. Though he knew he could die for praying to the one true God, he knew that faithfulness to his faithful God was more important than life itself. And let's just pause for a minute and reflect on Daniel's prayer life. Even though he was a busy man, busier probably than any of us, and even though he was an older man getting up in years, he maintained his practice of praying three times a day. He would give thanks to God repeatedly, day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And I think it's so encouraging to remember that David, excuse me, Daniel never gave up on praying. You know, in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians, we have that famous verse that says, pray without ceasing. It just means don't give up on prayer. Daniel never gave up on prayer. Now, let's, it's difficult for us to read this story and to stand in his sandals, but let's try. It, it would have been so tempting, I would think, to have become cynical over the years. 
I mean, he had been living in exile now since he was a teenager, and now he's in his late 80s. He had lived almost his entire life in exile, and even though he prayed three times a day, all this time, the empire he was living in was still pagan. Most of his fellow Jews were still in captivity. You know, if you don't get an answer to prayer in a day or a week or a month, you feel like, why am I praying? And here is a man who prayed faithfully three times a day for decades and never became cynical. How could that happen? Well, I would have to assume that Daniel was not fixated on his circumstances. Instead, he locked the eyes of his heart on God himself, on the character of God, that he saw God as sovereign, he saw God as faithful, he saw God as gracious. Like his three friends in the fiery furnace years before, Daniel, by God's sovereign grace, had the eyes of his heart opened. And because he had eyes in his heart that fixed on God himself, Daniel could see higher than his current circumstances. Whenever he felt pressured by the king, whenever he felt pressured by his fellow government officials, whenever he felt pressured by these forces around him to just give up, just give in, just go with the flow, Daniel, he could always see higher. And he could see above the king, above this current world system, is the king of kings. That he always looked over the shoulder of the people in front of him and he could see the king of kings, that God alone is sovereign. And like his three friends in the fiery furnace, with the eyes of his heart, Daniel could see farther. He could see that the Persian Empire was not eternal. God's kingdom alone is eternal. If you're curious why Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem, I think I have a suggestion. I can't prove this, but I have a hunch this might be the case. You see, praying toward Jerusalem was not a required ritual for the Jews. And yet understanding Daniel's faithfulness to God, I think he prayed at that open window facing Jerusalem 500 miles to the west because by doing so, he was confessing how much he valued the kingdom of God. That the Babylonian Empire certainly wasn't permanent. It's gone. The Medo-Persian Empire, it's here right now, but one day it'll be gone too. But God's kingdom is eternal. You know, it's interesting that hundreds of years before Daniel, King Solomon prayed a fascinating prayer that I am convinced Daniel would have been familiar with. It's recorded in what we know as 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 records a prayer by King Solomon that looked forward to the possibility that one day some of God's people would be rebellious and taken captive by the enemy. And this is how King Solomon prayed. I'm going to read to you now part of the prayer of King Solomon hundreds of years before Daniel. If they, that's God's people, repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, 
the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. By the Holy Spirit's directive, that was so prescient. I mean, Solomon prayed a prayer that Daniel was now living hundreds of years later and hundreds of miles away. That he was praying toward the city of God as an expression of God's faithfulness. Daniel could see higher. Daniel could see farther. And that gave him a calm, confident courage. And so he prayed, knowing the king's edict, he prayed publicly. So kids, what's going to happen next? You know this story? Daniel gets caught, doesn't he? He gets caught praying. These jealous politicians knew exactly what Daniel would do, and so they were waiting for him. They knew that Daniel would do what he had done every day for years. He would be praying to his Lord. And so, having witnessed this, they went storming into Darius's presence with their childish tattling. And Darius was heartsick. I'm guessing Darius was probably thinking something like this, I could just kick myself. No doubt it began to sink in him, into him, how foolish he had been to succumb to the flattery of these government officials. He tried various maneuvers all day long. He tried different legal maneuvers probably to try to get Daniel, his friend, out of this fix. But he couldn't find a way. So come evening, he ordered Daniel to be brought into his presence. Look at verse 16. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually. By the way, that's, that's the eyewitness of a pagan king. He says to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and the signets of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They their children and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. 
Daniel was thrown into the den of lions, and a stone was rolled over the entrance. The king put his seal on that stone, and then the seal, no doubt, of the accusers, so that there could be no accusation of uh, falsity, of uh, foul play, and rescuing Daniel. It seemed like sealing that tomb was sealing the fate of Daniel. And yet, what happened during the night? Well, Darius had a rough night, didn't he? Darius went back to the palace where he was worried. He was heartsick. He couldn't eat. He didn't want any entertainment. No doubt he just tossed and turned all night long, maybe paced the floor there in his palace. The night dragged on. But what do you imagine the night was like for Daniel? <laughs> you know, Isaiah had written a couple hundred years before this, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. God, when people's hearts are fixed on you, when they stand on you, your character, your promises, they live in peace. And there was Daniel in the lion's den, sleeping maybe among those big cats, unless he decided to stay up and chat with the angel. And we don't know, do we? But he obviously had a better night than King Darius. So morning comes, first light. Darius ran to the lion's den. When he got there, he calls out to Daniel, that blessed call. Daniel, has your God been able to deliver you? And what does he hear coming up out of the lion's den? Not the roar of lions. Here's a testimony of King Daniel. Yes, King, I'm safe. I am sound. God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths. And I'm fine, King. That the Lord has rescued me because I've not done anything in his sight to deserve this, and king, I've not done anything in your sight either. And so the king had Daniel pulled out of the den, and there wasn't a single scratch on him. There was no nip out of any part of his body. Those lions had not touched him. There is this sobering, even gruesome epilogue to the story, isn't there, that doesn't make the children's books. The king had Daniel's false accusers and their families thrown into the lion's den. Yet these false accusers were executed by the same method that they had proposed for Daniel. And the lions obviously had not avoided Daniel because they had full bellies. Uh, these false accusers were already crushed before they ever hit the floor. You see, in ancient times, the judicial system was this, that if someone falsely, falsely accused an innocent person of a crime, and it was found out that they had falsely accused an innocent person intentionally, then the punishment that the false accuser had sought for the innocent person was meted out on him. And so these false accusers of Daniel wanted him to die in the lion's den. And so that punishment that they were pursuing for Daniel was poured out on them. That's even in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 19. Then Darius made this phenomenal decree. Look now in your Bible at Daniel 6 verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwelt in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. 
For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. There's this epilogue in which King Darius makes this phenomenal decree. And there's no reason necessarily to believe that he became a true follower of the true God of the Bible. He still calls him Daniel's God. But at least he acknowledges uh, respect for Daniel's God and tells the people, join me in respecting the God of Daniel. Look at what he does. He does signs and wonders. He, he delivered Daniel out of the lion's den. So fellow Christian, let us think for a few minutes about the life of Daniel. Again, let's go back and summarize in our minds and our hearts the many pressures Daniel would have experienced over decades of living and working in such a hostile society. Imagine the pressures that he would have lived in to just give up, give in. Being faithful to God invariably arouses the hostility of unbelievers. As Paul was on death row, he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If we seek to live a public life, a life in our circles of influence, at our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, don't be surprised if non-Christians don't like it. Don't be surprised if they don't like you. <coughs> Daniel lived with that pressure, not for a week, not for a month, for decades. <coughs> How did Daniel remain faithful year after year? How did he remain faithful to the true God decade after decade? He locked on to the character of God himself. He was God-oriented. That was his perspective on life. He viewed life before the throne of God. That perspective enabled him to see higher, once again, to see higher. He saw over these people of power, these people of pressure in his life, he could see over them, and he could see over them was the king of kings, his God, his heavenly father. Someone he could trust, someone he could be loyal to, faithful to. And Daniel could see farther. He knew that the kingdoms of this world are not ultimate, they're not eternal. He realized not to live for just the current situation, but to live for eternity. That his eyes, the eyes of his heart, could see higher and farther. And that gave him a calm, confident courage to live for God, be faithful to God, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And what about you and me? What kind of pressure do you and I face as we live in this current world system? Let me just pick one, one that I think we need to be aware of in our culture. Have you noticed in our culture how there's been this increasing pressure to treat, quote, religion as a private matter? The religion must be treated as a private matter. 
it's okay for you, it's okay for me to have some form of religion. But we must never imply or state that other people should see matters of faith the way we do. If you and I go to the world around us, whatever your circle of influence is, at your school, at your workplace, your neighborhood, your family reunions, if we go to our circles of influence and we say that the only way to be right with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, people are offended. And you must not offend anyone. And so keep your religion private. You must cease and desist from going public with your faith or you will be shut out from the public forum and you will be marginalized relationally. It seems that the only way to be accepted in our culture is to agree that all religions are equally valid and the values of those who control the the groupthink of our culture are the only ones that will be tolerated in this supposed quest for tolerance. Yet this tolerance that we're facing in our day is different from the tolerance of ages past. It's always been true that we need to live with respect with people that we disagree with. But now the new tolerance says you can't disagree. The new tolerance says there are no absolutes. Well, except for this one, this absolute. Everybody's views and values are equally valid. That's the only absolute. And you have to go with the flow. You and I are being increasingly pressured to go with that flow. That to have any voice in the forum around us, to be accepted by the people around us, we have to keep our, quote, religion private, and we need to treat everybody's religions, everybody's values as, as valuable, as valid as anybody else's. And I would not be surprised if this subtle increased pressure that we're living with continues to be cranked one notch, two notches, three notches, until eventually we're going to be realizing it's not just ostracism, it's not just being shamed by the people around us, but it becomes outright persecution. Listen, friends, as we're here today on this rainy Sunday, we have brothers and sisters in Christ and other countries that are facing persecution because they're public with their faith in Jesus Christ. They're willing to live it. They're willing to talk about it in their own daily life. And in ages past, Christians before us faced similar persecution, even people like Daniel. So how are you and I going to stand strong for Christ year after year? How are we going to move through our years into our old age, still being faithful to our faithful God? How can you and I live with this increased, persistent pressure that's pulling on us, pushing on us to conform, to give in, to fit in? Listen, I'm not asking you to dare to be a Daniel, but I am challenging you to trust in Daniel's God. With eyes of faith, we must see higher than our current situation. We must not fixate 
on people of power, people of influence in our world, thinking that current world leaders or even community leaders or people in our circles of influence and of power are somehow going to be our saviors. We must look above those people who are pressuring us to fit in. We must look above them and to see, yes, the king of kings. And we must set our, the eyes of our heart not only higher but farther. We have to remember that the current situation we're in, even the current culture that we're in, is not permanent. Cultures come and go. Kingdoms come and go. But God and his kingdom endure forever. And we must live with that perspective, with the eyes of our heart locked on God and his character and his promises. If you and I will live that way, not just privately, but publicly, we are going to stand out as different. Now, being different in our culture is not a good thing, but in God's value system, standing out as different is actually a good thing. Listen carefully as I read some sentences from the lips of our Savior Jesus himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That even though the world persistently, increasingly pressures us to fit in, keep your religion to yourself. Be private about matters of faith. Treat other religions, treat other value systems as valid, as equally valid. That pressure is on us now, and it is increasingly on us, and it will likely be persistently on us. But if we calmly, confidently, courageously say, no, I want to be faithful to my God, not just in the private realm, but even publicly. As I live in my world and in daily life, I want to live for God. Then you will stand out as different. And in God's grace, <coughs> you will be pointing people to God himself, and they will be giving him glory. Let me address those of us who are adults here, parents, grandparents, other adults. We need to lead the way for the coming generation showing them and teaching them that even though we're in this world, the world must not be in us. That we live for a higher calling, that we are called to live faithful to our faithful God, come what may. You know, the story in Daniel 6 reminds me of another true story. Jesus Christ was also the object of an unfair plot, and he too was arrested while in prayer. He too was put into a sort of pit. The door was sealed, a stone was rolled over it. The stone was sealed and everyone assumed that that was the end, this was a done deal. But even as God rescued Daniel out of that lion's den, he rescued his son from the grave and on the third day, Jesus rose again. Our hope is not in trying to be like Daniel, but our hope is in Jesus Christ himself. Our hope is in Daniel's God, that we put our faith in him, our faithful God, seeking by his grace to live faithful lives, not just in the private realm, but in the public as well. 
Let's pray, even as the worship team comes, to lead us in a closing song.